pray with me, would you please? God, you are so good. We invite you to commandeer this evening any and every way you want to be glorified, to be exalted, to be our focal point. But Lord, as we seek to hone in on you, take our wandering minds and commandeer them, captivate them, Lord, so that we would be completely consumed with you tonight and that in you we would have so much fun. We'd learn and we'd grow and we'd know you better. And Lord, that tonight would be so beautiful, so profound, so real. Lord, perform the ministry, the surgery you want to do with each of us. That there would be none of us, Lord, you would leave alone, but rather, Lord, that you would tonight profoundly minister. That we would hear you and know you better, love you more. But also, Lord, teach us how to love each other. Because I know, Lord, ultimately you've told us that the, the truest proof that we are students, disciples, is that we have love one for another. So teach us how to love one another. So Lord, please, tonight, let us learn from David the things we need to learn. And I'm so thankful for this beautiful chapter and what you ordained for us to learn in it. So have your way, please, I pray. I commit every second of this to you. Draw us into you now, I pray. In Jesus, in your name. Amen. What's say tonight is that when any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Not just if it feels right, let's be honest. We've all had things that felt right that were not right. We've all had things we thought were right that were not right. But the scripture is right. And I do love that. And because the scripture is right, there's a beauty in being able to say, hey, even if it doesn't feel right, even if it doesn't, uh, you know, initially it's like against my common sense. And yet, Lord, I want something that I can trust to test everything to. And by the way, it astounds me today, and I won't try not to go off on this, how much media we just believe because it's in the media, which astounds me because there are so many people who have taken to arms over issues that they've never personally seen or experienced, but they've just been told. They've been told by sources and they've seen pictures and they're just assuming it to be true. And now they're grabbing banners and waving signs. And, 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 and again, the whole point I'm saying is it's just tested by what is true. Don't just assume something's true because someone says it. All right. We are roughly at about a thousand B.C., a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ, a thousand years, a millennium before Jesus. And we have an individual here named David. David, we know of, was called a king as a replacement of the tallest man in town. That was Saul, the first physical king that people ask for of the nation Israel. They have now assumed the land of Israel as we know it today. And they've asked for a king, they said, so that we could be like all the other nations. There is this natural tendency to want to go to that which we can touch. I mean, let's face it, it's a little rough with the whole God thing initially, right? Because it's like, how do you explain to God someone that you can't touch or see but talks to you, but they don't see him? And it's, I understand why people would think you're daft. It doesn't mean it's not true what you're saying. It's just that they don't get it. It's one of the reasons why things like baptism and other things that are physical are a, are a better understanding for them because they can see and kind of contemplate these things more than the ethereal information we're giving them about Jesus. And it takes some kind of proof. People are looking for evidence. And, and we are supposed to be that proof. That's the whole, you know, Acts 1-8 thing. Is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we'll be evidence. We'll be materials. We'll be the witnesses that God calls for the world out there. And, and the world's tired of our arguments. They're tired of our banner waving. But what they are really called to, what they really want to know is they want to know that if this God changes lives, they want to see a changed life. I think, to be honest, that's actually pretty, pretty logical. I think that's fair. I mean, if we were going to say that this God who created all of eternity transforms human beings, we should be the people they should be looking at to discover that. If we say that Jesus is unique from every other religious leader, and what they're looking at is there were people who used to do certain things that were probably a little bit more on the dicier side of life, and now they kind of see them not doing those things, and then they look at us and they kind of see the similarity. They're like, oh, you got religious, and that gets in some big political category of you submitted yourself to something, and from that you're trying to be a nicer person. And if that's all you have, 
And that's all we have. And we're trying to tell them that Jesus is different. Well, then how in the world is he different? And understand the reason I say that is, is that when we're looking at someone like David, we're watching a life change. And this was the people resorting to a physical person is them going backwards. Not walking in faith, which is the evidence of things not seen. But now it's like, ah, I just, I need to touch something. I need to hear something. I need to smell something. I need to feel something. Don't tell me God loves me. I need to feel someone love me. That's kind of the idea. But Saul was a man with a great calling and no consecration. And ultimately he'll be replaced by a teenager. More than likely, roughly about 14, 15 years old when he's called to be king. But then we'll spend the next 15 years of his life running for his life because Saul has no interest in stepping off the throne. And that has been the problem throughout all of this as we keep seeing these, if you will, these echoes of Saul keep resonating and how that affects even a person surrendered. And we have this life then, once Saul is now supposed to be dethroned, David, the rightful king, is supposed to take that throne. And we watch what happens in the effects of that whole incident and understand as I'm looking at that situation from roughly about 1 Samuel, now we're looking in the middle of 1 Samuel 14, 15, 16, through to where we get to the beginning of 2 Samuel, it's really the same situation that takes place in my heart, more than likely yours too, the moment you said yes to Jesus. Because saying yes to Jesus, saying I don't want to go to hell, well, we get that. I mean, I think anyone in their right mind would want to do whatever they need to to not go to hell. But the idea of letting Jesus be Lord, letting the rightful king take his throne, well, that's a much more greater battle in most of our lives. So what we find is the old guy has no interest in stepping off to make room for the right king to take his throne. And in the same way, when I said yes to Jesus, the old guy really didn't want to step off the throne to let Jesus sit where he's supposed to sit. And the battle was one, we learned some beautiful lessons in David's life. One is that David never, though having the opportunity, at least twice, never takes it by force. And I've learned this about Jesus. He has never taken any area of my life by force. What he wants is a willful surrender. David will wait. And though having two very clear shots to kill Saul will not do so because David would rather get the throne by being handed over than he would by finally beating you into submission. By the way, God never has to beat you into submission because we're really good at doing that ourselves. All he has to do is leave us alone to our own devices. And the moment he leaves us to our own devices, we'll whack ourselves hard. And then God will say, have you had enough? And then the crazy part is, We'll blame God. We'll run around out there, get promiscuous, and then blame God if we got a disease. How did that work? God was the one who said, don't do that. Now, the reason I say that is, basically, then from the middle of 1 Samuel through to the end of 1 Samuel, what we have again is David running for his life for the second half of that period until finally Saul passes away. And what I learned from that is, if David, if the rightful king is going to have to take the throne of my heart, since he's not going to take it by force, the old guy has to die. Because he's, to be honest, he's just never really going to surrender. He really just doesn't have it in him to want to surrender. And my whole flesh nature is the very same, by the way. My flesh nature has no interest in surrendering. As a matter of fact, it also has no interest in sharing. If given the right, my flesh nature, by the way, to be honest, just wants total domination. There's no joint custody there. But here's the good news. Jesus is the same. He has no interest in sharing me with anything else that way. He's to be my first love. So David finally gets the throne, but he doesn't get all the throne at once. In the beginning, David gets the throne if you will, of the tribe from which he belongs. Now, it goes all the way back to Genesis 49, where it tells us that the scepter will not depart from Judah, which tells us that somewhere down the line, a king is going to come from Judah. Saul, by the way, was from Benjamin. And so David's starting to fulfill that. But what we're going to see tonight is going to be infinitely deeper. Now, ultimately, Saul dies. David gets the throne of one of the tribes at that point. That's the tribe of Judah from which David belongs. And then ultimately, he'll be the king of just that southern area for seven and a half years. During that time, though Saul is dead, Saul has sons. 
And another one of Saul's sons has stepped up, though Saul has lost a couple of his sons in battle with him in that battle in Gilboa. Yet there are still remnants of Saul and the remnant son of Saul steps up and his name, interestingly enough, is man of shame and man of shame rises up. And as he rises up, he wants to go and take the throne that rightfully belongs to, to David. But he wants, in essence, thinks he has some claim to the throne because his dad was king before and in the same way in my life, and I think it's interesting that we, if we do the math, clearly he didn't take the throne immediately after the death of Saul. What we find instead is somewhere down the line, as the rightful king starts to take the throne, up, rising from the ashes and shadows is man of shame to kind of make his way back into your life to this place somewhere where we're going to go and recede back to this place of shame and this place of regret, this place of sorrows that we were actually rescued from the moment we said yes to Jesus and let him be king. And ultimately, he'll have to die too. David never takes him on. It isn't like David says, all right, you're dead. I'm going after you and I'm going to kill you. Instead, what we find is, is that again, it's going to have to be a willful surrender or it's going to have to be death. And all the remnants of Saul seem to end up that way except for one. Now, interestingly enough, David now ultimately will get to be the king over all of the the tribes of Israel. That's all 12 of them. And as David becomes the, the king over all 12 of the tribes, if you will, to be Lord of all of the land of Israel, like same way that there are times where, where Jesus becomes the Lord of all of my life, not just the parts that I think are nasty, that I was more than happy for him to be the rubbish bin collector for, but to be honest, my dreams and my identity and my aspirations and my value systems, the things, to be honest, that I would be natural to take a right to, but I don't belong to. Even in those areas, when he becomes king of all, what you find is he starts to do some beautiful things. He starts even there to centralize the government. He takes the property the farthest north for the tribe of Judah, and he makes that the headquarters so that it's easier for him to be gotten to by every other person, by all the tribes now. He could have gone deeper south, and that would have made him, to be honest, very unreachable for the northern tribes like Dan. But instead, he heads as farthest north as he can so that he himself can be accessible to all. And from there, he's going to take the ark of God and bring it in. He's going to bring that in because what he really, really wants more than anything is God's presence in his life. David, different from most people, not chasing after God's blessings, not chasing after God's power, not chasing after even God's, if you will, sort of God's peace. But David's really looking for God's presence. So much so that David is in this place where David takes the ark of God and he has it brought in, he brings it in improperly the first time, uses the world's sort of identifications and, and motives, or I should say methods, but then ultimately realizes there's only one way to do this and it has to be on the shoulders of priests. And as David goes and gets it and brings it back, David is worshiping with all of his might and also in truth. And we've said last week that God really wants us to worship in truth, but also to truly worship. And so in that, David, as he comes in, he, and he's just had a great day now. David has, he's danced before the Lord. He's weeping and leaping, not weeping, leaping and whirling about. I mean, the guy's just basically, I mean, David doesn't care whether he's crumping or whether David's doing something that looks kind of like a weird skip. As far as David is concerned, he's dancing before the Lord, not before people. And he's just not concerned about it because he's just so excited about the Lord. He can't sit still. I have a daughter like that. When she gets excited, there's no keeping her still. There are no, there's no amount of animal tranquilizers in the world that can stop that girl from dancing when a song is in her heart, which, by the way, I have no complaint about. But unfortunately, as David goes and we read, David goes to bless his house. As he goes into the house, Lo and behold, who is he happen to be married to? A daughter of Saul. And now we have another remnant of Saul popping up in the life of a person like me or like you. We've had a time of really intense, beautiful, intimate worship, praise, or throwing our hearts before God. And she basically, the only way I can picture is someone from my old neighborhood where her hands are on her hips like this, shoulders are back. Oh, the king behaves so! You know, and just going off on him. He's like, yo, y'all make a fool of me. Y'all, what you doing? What you think you're doing, fool? You realize people, you know who married that man? You know who married that man? 
Look at that fool dancing around his underwear. Look at that old man, she fool. I mean, look, you really think for a moment that what you're doing is going to bless God? Fool. Pardon me, that's at least my own neighborhood. And I love David's answer. Now understand, in the same way as I'm seeking to go, you know what? I know that right now I could stand. I know right now I could lift my hands. I know right now I could sing from the top of my lungs. And I'm not telling you, if, if you're not that kind of person, I'm not, telling, I'm not trying to shape you into someone you're not. But when there's that part of you that says, I've got more to give, but I'm so afraid the person next to me is going to go, mm-hmm, that kind of thing. Well, let me just say something here. That is not the voice of God telling you that. That's the old voice of Saul popping back up in your life. That says, man, don't you make a fool of me. Don't you embarrass me right now. You know you got more. And I love David, who's a man after God's own heart, looks and in the simplest sense he says, Honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, Why, you think that was bad? He goes, I will become even more undignified than this. And he goes, In other words, honey, you thought that was the performance? That was just the rehearsal. He says, But I'll become even more undignified than this. Yeah, that might be bothering you, but the real servants, I will be held in honor to them. And I love that. Listen, if you really go full on for Jesus, yeah, there are even going to be religious people that will mock you. But the real servants will hold you in honor. The real question is, what posse do you want to run with? Let's just be honest. The moment you've got someone that like, pulls you aside to do an intervention, goes, I don't know, you're getting kind of deep on this Jesus thing. Is that really who you want? I mean, if you were training for the Olympics because what you didn't want was just to qualify, but you actually thought gold sounds good, and you were around a bunch of other people, to be honest, that really would rather throw the javelin with a wee, and they look and go, you know, you're getting a little bit crazy with this thing because, you know, you're like getting up earlier and you're working out and you're running and you're doing and your diet. Let's face it. When you want to do something really well, it affects every area of your life. I mean, do you know guys like Chris Evans or Chris Hemsworth, those Chris's that wind up being in Marvel, have to get up at four in the morning just so they can eat and work out and then they go back to sleep and do it again? I mean, do you think that those pecs come easy? I mean, you know, mine kind of do, but those guys have to work at it, so... You know, real Captain America. The, uh, and the whole point of it is this. Is if they really want to have that physique, they're going to have to work at it. That just doesn't come naturally. And from my understanding, neither one of them are actually using artificial means. They're just working really hard at it. I have respect for anybody that does that. And yet for us, we, want to, we would really, I think we're just happy to go to heaven and we really don't want to be awesome in the kingdom. And yet God created inside of each of us a desire to be awesome. I know that because when I was a sinner, everything inside of me wanted to be an awesome sinner. I was crazy full on. How in the world can I not be crazy full on for God when I was so crazy full on for destruction? Well, having said that, David, now we read the, what we read at the end of chapter 6 is that Michal, that's Saul's daughter, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Do you know what happened as a result of her going off on Saul? David and she were never intimate again. And might I say, when you get to that place where you really are in love with the Lord to the point of, even if it's in your heart, whirling about, and somebody wants to try to get you to focus on you instead of God, intimacy cuts real hard there. You're like, you know what? This ain't happening. David now is starting to realize he's taken the ark of God, he's put it, if you will, in his front yard, and he's put it under a tent. That's where we left off in regards to the situation. We left off, obviously, with a very disgruntled Michal, Saul's daughter, and a David that is clearly committed and unmoved by her nastiness, by her hands-on hip manifestations. So let me see this as we dive into our chapter. David seemed to be obsessed with one thing. And it wasn't being king. It wasn't even being shepherd. And it wasn't even being a songwriter, though he would call himself the sweet psalmist at the end of his life. In Psalm 27, verse 4, David says, One thing I've desired of the Lord, and that I will seek. And the idea there is to drop everything and focus on this one ambition. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. If there's one thing I could have, if God were to ask, as he will to David's son, David's son says, I feel like I'm a little kid. Can I have wisdom to rule these people? God's like, that was a good choice. It's not the best, though. If you were to ask his dad, David, David, what would you like? One thing, can I just move in? Can we just live together, God? Wouldn't that be cool? We just like roomies. We hung out. I just, I just don't want to be away from you for a moment. I just want to be with you. You ever have really awesome times of prayer? The only word that you don't want to say at that moment is amen. Because you just don't want it to end. You'd rather just sit quietly and go, oh, this is so good. Than to think somehow in that moment, it isn't even that the world is being suspended for you. The world just doesn't matter at the moment because you're just with the Lord and you know that when you move from this moment, everything's going to be better anyways. David says this in Psalm 26, verse 8, Oh Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. In Psalm 23, as David compares his life to being a shepherd, of David being the sheep, interestingly enough, and the Lord being a shepherd, he, he ends the psalm with, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And David's going, You know the one thing I really want? Just to be with you forever, Lord. David would say, You are my reward. You are my exceedingly good inheritance. The lines have fallen to me in a good place. David's like, You know, the only thing I really want is, is you. That's really all I want. In Psalm 65, verse 4, David says, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. He will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Psalm 63, verse 1, David says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He's like, I just want to go where you are and see you for who you really are. So I'm tired of the way that I see around me this sad misrepresentation of you, even among your own people. I just want to see you for who you are. I just want to be with you. It's you and me, please. And in our text, believe it or not, we're actually getting to it now. David now has gotten to a point where he looks and he sits in his house. He's got this palace but he looks out and God's camping in his front yard and he says this in verse 1, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and all the Lord had given him, sorry, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in ten curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? And we'll continue on in a moment, but hear me. One of the things I love about David is what I learned in the first verse alone. David had gotten what everyone else seeks for on earth. Comfort. The natural inclination of human beings is we get to this place where we can get in a pattern, we get in a habit, ultimately so we can get the house, we can get the cars, we get the kids, the wife and kids, whatever the case is. But somewhere down the line, we're in the rut to sooner or later we can retire with the things we like and not have to do the things we don't. Couch, we know exactly where our rear end fits into it. We can, without looking, grab the remote and know how to turn it off and on and put it back in its place. We know exactly what to stock our fridge with and what not to. We know exactly how far it is to the places we'd like to eat at. We know the numbers we have on speed dial. You know, we have on, like on all of our contacts, all of the numbers we need for the places we want to call to get food. And now we're like, oh, I've got what I need. Here, David now has gotten everything that you'd want there. And this would be the point for David to retire and he's not. There is a danger, beloved. Hear me and prosperity and comfort. There is a danger there. There is a danger because somehow in those places where there isn't, you're not aware of the need that you have, you forget that God is still the one who supplies all your needs. 
And you forget that there's still a battle going on because at the moment you feel insulated from any form of threat, from any form of discomfort. So as a result of that, there's not really a challenge to grow and there's more of a temptation to basically be complacent. It tells us this, by the way, it's verses that I often hold to. Uh, I'm reminded of often in my own heart in Psalm, I'm sorry, in Proverbs 24, verses 33 and 34, it says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And so poverty comes like a prowler and your need like an armed man. He says, man, you really want to, some of you have ridden bikes where you get to that point where you're pedaling and you're pedaling and you've got enough speed going and you're really not going uphill. So you're not, you're not going to, and you just kind of coast, right? The, the, you stop pedaling and you just kind of let that up in and you're just kind of there. Maybe you're kind of putting your hands up and putting them, you know, because you're trying to look cool. But in the end of it all, you know, you're not, you know what happens is the moment you start hitting an incline, bike stops. And what happens often is, is that some of those inclines you really had wished you had gotten a really good strong approach to because it gets a lot harder to pedal up that thing at the point now where your bike is slowing down. And the reason I say that is, is somewhere in our walk, we get to this place. Now, I'm not talking about not resting in Christ, but what I am talking about is not getting to the place where we don't want to grow anymore because we're kind of like, this is cool enough. This is far enough for me. And David here has that prime opportunity. I mean, at this point, the historians would say that David's well over a billionaire. He's got this big, beautiful house, which, by the way, according to 2 Samuel 5, the king of Tyre, his name is Hiram, had actually sent guys down with those cedars of Lebanon. Those that are big enough you can drive a, a lorry through. And he had a few of those cut down. And I don't know if you're familiar with cedar. It smells so good. It's got a citric smell to it. David's house is a natural air freshener because of the wood that's being used. And he's got this palace that's built there. David is basically living as high on the, on the hog as he possibly Well, that's probably a bad thing to say as a Jewish king. But he's living as high on sort of the riches as he can at the moment. This guy, I mean, what would this be like today? This would be like David living in, what's bigger, what's better than Chelsea? What's more expensive? I mean, where do we go from there? If you make more money than Chelsea, where do you go? Bishop's Avenue. Okay. Is that kind of, that's probably, that's probably where all the football players live. Is that, I guess? Okay, so to St. John's Wood, there's a couple areas of that. I just know because when people give us a ride home, we kind of take that route home. And you look at all these places, and it's kind of funny to me because not only do you have to have this huge house with this big gate and all of that, but now you also have to have scaffolding in front of it, right? Because it's one thing to have bought the house, and you're going, well, check it out. I had enough money to buy the house. But if you were really rich, you'd keep doing improvements on it, right? You know, I mean, obviously, you didn't blow all your cash by buying the house. But I mean, if it were me, I'd have bought the house, I would have put the scaffolding up permanently, and then you wouldn't care because you just think I was doing, you know, obviously that's one of the reasons I'm not rich. Anyways, the whole point of it is, is that this is where David is. David, in essence, he's graduated to this place where he has, he has more money than he's going to be able to spend. He has all the comfort. He has all the latest technology of the day. He's got all of the, uh, the armed guards. And remember, this was a kid who ran for his life for 15 years. This is not David's story. This is a kid, in essence, if you'll think about it, he's kind of from the hood now because of that. So he's kind of, in essence, think about it. David is the first, or the you know, 1000 BC's version of the fresh prince of Bel Air. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's kind of, except he's the fresh king because, you know, he's just kind of in a place where now he's just he's thrown into the lap of luxury. And what I love is David doesn't go, yeah, check me out. We're good. David looks and he goes, well, this isn't right. How can I get all this? And I look out my window and there's a tent out there that God's in. Because this just doesn't seem right to me. You know, there are several times in Scripture where somebody actually gets so blessed, they look and they go, you know, this just isn't right. And they don't say it isn't right to be blessed. They look and they they get so blessed, they look beyond themselves for a moment and they start to see something's not right here. This is a situation we'll get to when we get to the kings, where are these lepers. At the moment, Jerusalem is being besieged, which means that the army surrounded them on all sides, so they can't go in and out. They're expecting them to starve to death and they are really very hungry. I mean, they are, they're eating babies and dove's dung and I mean, it's a really awful time. And there's a small handful of lepers. These guys obviously, in essence, physically have a death sentence on them anyways, and they're at the gate. And they're kind of looking as the Syrians have surrounded them, and they say, well, 
you know, it's kind of like a lose-lose here. If we, you know, if we stay right where we're at, we're going to starve to death anyways. We could try to surrender to the Syrians. If we try to surrender to the Syrians, maybe they'll be kind to us and we can have a good meal before we die of leprosy. I mean, it's like, but I mean, so they're like, well, if we've kind of weighed our options, the only one that seems to make any sense is let's head over to the Syrians. They head over to the Syrians and what they found is an angel of the Lord has freaked out the Syrians and they have fled like little girls in every direction, leaving everything behind. So I understand when you do a besieging, what you do is you basically build a town around uh, the place you're besieging because you might be there for years. So, I mean, think about it. In essence, you've kind of done prefab sprout around the, around the city. So that means, you know, there's barbecues and there's, you know, everyone's just kind of there. So imagine, if you will, you're starving to death and you kind of head down this hill and then you walk in and it's like there's food and there's money and there's, you know, Armani suits all over the place. And they kind of look at each other and they're like, I mean, they go into the first place and I'm sure you would too. They're like, this is a trap. Clearly, this is a trap. They're just going to wait. We're going to sit here. We're going to eat. And I'm going to have like a turkey leg in my mouth. And, be, oh! and they're going to kill us. You know, and but they kind of wait. And, you know, you're eating with one eye open and kind of just nibbling and looking. And then finally, you kind of look and you're like, nothing happened. And then you go into another tent and it happens in another tent. And sooner or later, you got to that place where you kind of had to hope that you had elastic trousers on. You know, they're loosening their sash. And they're like, oh, boy. And then they kind of look. And finally, after all of that, they look and they go, you know, this just isn't right. I mean, look at us. We gorged ourselves on all of this. And the, the town we came from, everyone's starving to death. Do you think we should go tell them? They're in a place of absolute desperation. And we're in a place of abject abundance. Guys, it really is my heart that we had realized the feast we have in Christ. And in these moments where we feast on his word, we feast on it. That we get to this place where we're like, you know, I walk out these doors and spiritually people are starving to death. They're eating their babies. Like I'm like, it's just not right for us to have all of this abundance and watch everyone else at least not give them a chance to come in and feast with us. Well, David, in our text here, he's in that situation. Hezekiah tells us, we will learn about Hezekiah, and I think it's 2 Kings 20, where he was a king who had a lot of battles to fight, and he was always a decent king. And then he was like, basically, God's like, put your house in order, you're going to die. And he basically has a little hissy fit. He rolls over, faces the wall, and he's like, I've been really good to God, I don't understand why he's going to let me die. You know. And so the, the, Isaiah comes back, and he's like, well, okay, well, God, I tell you what, God said he'll give you 15 more years, you're, you're good. And what happens is, is that ultimately God does something else though when he gives them that extra time. What he does in that spare time is he also gives them comfort and prosperity. Now there's no battles to fight. Now there's no challenges for him. The only battle he has to fight now is the one he doesn't recognize, and that's the battle of his own pride and comfort. And it's in that time he has the worst, nastiest king that's ever existed, Menasha, who kills anything that seems holy and just makes everything as nasty as he can. And he becomes really proud and he starts parading all of his wealth. It was like Hezekiah was always great until the comfort came. And it's like what we really want from God, God, give me comfort, give me prosperity. And we think that the best prosperity God has to give us is money. We can see why there are times where God wouldn't just make us roll in the dough like that if what that does is just turn us into people that would actually become rotten for it. Well, I mean, I always say, Lord, wouldn't it be great if I actually had the right kind of heart that you could bless me abundantly and I'd still serve you? Well, that's another story. So David looks and he sees this and he, what happens is he has peace on all sides. But he looks and he realizes, he looks at the, at the Lord and he goes, this just isn't right. And then he goes and he talks to a guy named Nathan. Nathan means gift. And this is where he's introduced in Scripture. He's clearly a prophet. God tells us that, Nathan, the prophet. But what's great is Nathan starts his ministry here with a mistake. Did you notice that? What's going to happen is he's going to say, David, that's a great idea. Then God's going to pull him out and say at night, Nate, uh, go back and tell him that wasn't the right idea. Now you'd say, well, wait a minute, does that make him a false prophet? 
I mean, after all, he's actually said something wrong here, said something amiss. Well, understand, there's a difference between him saying something and him saying, thus says the Lord. And matter of fact, that's what the Lord will tell Nathan to say is, now I want you to go back and tell him what I had to say, not just your estimation. Now, what Nathan did not do in this time is he didn't pray. Did you notice that? Now, look, you could sit and talk to somebody who loves God, who loves him, who's passionate for him, who's hungry for his presence, who still can make a really wrong choice in the will of God. Now, again, this is the one thing David wanted. What David wanted was a house for the Lord that David could live in, and David will never get it as long as he lives. All he's going to get is this temple that's a tabernacle. It's just a tent. So what do you do when you throw your heart's desire to God and you're convinced that that would be God's perfect will, and then God actually says no, because that's not what I want. Well, where do you go from there? We have a lot to learn in this. And David cannot seem at this moment to reconcile the greater honor and comfort that he has than when he sees God experiencing outside. And he has a great heart. He has a great desire, he has great perspective, but even the best-sounding ideas still need to be checked with prayer, Right? It's like, you know, I don't, I don't see why this is a bad idea. seems totally perfect to me. It jives with me and my mindset. But I'm like, well, let's get on our faces and ask God just to make sure. Now, the chapter picks up, by the way. It says in verse 4, again, it happened. That night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, remember, Nathan's had this cool meeting with the king. He's like, yeah, it's a great idea, buddy. Go for it. Check it out. Here's me and the king. You can see him like, it's me and the king, everyone. Hashtag hanging with the king, you know, and and somewhere in all of that, and then God's gonna pull him aside and go, hey, 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 Nate, Nate, you need to go back and tell him what I have to say now. Thus says the Lord. Twice, by the way, God will call David his servant in this text, starting here in verse five. Go tell my servant David. Would thus says the Lord? Would you really build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to, pit, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a, na- a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I'll plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne or the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father. He'll be his son. He'll be, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. I'll explain that in a moment. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you and your throne shall be established forever. According to these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan's got to go back, and I want you to get this, please. First of all, notice that God didn't actually just nail Nathan while he was speaking to David. Maybe he gave David some time, which is even weirder, than you might think about it, which means Nathan's gone. David must think he's got the prophet's approval at this point, which you would assume then that means that's God's approval. And so what do you think David's doing that night? If I were David, I'd be drawing up plans. This is what the house is going to look like. Let's, let's see. What do we make God's house look like? How do we make it look cool? How do we make it look God-like, you know? How do we make it full of majesty and cool with lights and this and that and, you know, I mean, all of that. And then somewhere after a night of all of this, tomorrow, you know, Nathan shows up and goes, mm, God came and talked to me and said, uh, that's not the plan. 
What we're looking at in verses 5 through 17 is what we would call the Davidic covenant. It's the third major covenant that we see. Then we'll see a Noahic covenant, if you will, with Noah that God says, I'm never going to flood the earth again with water. Yeah, because next time it's with fire. But we do have two other major covenants up to this point. And please understand something. A covenant is very much different than a contract. The biggest difference between a contract and a covenant is that a covenant demands relationship. For those who work in the legal field, they could tell you what a contract is. It is, in essence, the promise of a service or some item rendered to another individual at a future time. It does not demand a relationship. But a covenant demands a relationship. And God doesn't get into contract with people. He gets into covenants because our God is a relational God. And because he's a relational God, he wants a relationship with you. And he wants to get into covenants. The Abrahamic covenant that's in Genesis 12, God told him to step out from where he was to a land he would show him, demands that he has to stay tight with God or he would never know where he's going. But ultimately, the promise was a promise of land. The land of Israel as we know it today. But then there was another covenant, the covenant that we would call the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant we get when we look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The Mosaic Covenant in a simplest sense is an if-then. But you need to recognize this started with an Abrahamic Covenant. And it is important to note God did not give the Ten Commandments to Israel when they were in Egypt. God took them out of Egypt and then gave them the commandments so they wouldn't go back. And in the same way, we look at the law of God and the word of God and we get into the epistles in the New Testament and you want to thrust those on an unbeliever. I don't blame them for freaking out and running from you. Because first, only Jesus can get us out of the Egypt we came from, the place of bondage and slavery for our sin. And once we get out, then God doesn't want us going back. His word is to help us grow forward, not fall back. There's the idea. So we have Abraham's covenant of land. We have Moses' covenant, if you will, in essence, of moving forward into a land that God promised, the same land, by the way, that God promised Abraham. And then we have David's covenant. But there's something I want you to see right from the beginning of this. And that is that it is never what we can do for God, but it's what God will do for and through us, first of all. David wants to build a house for God. And you don't need to do anything for God except this. Hand yourself to him. Watch what happens. But to me, the most profound, simple statement in all of this is that God never says no. God says instead of. See, God, I mean, it all depends on how we hear it. Clearly what Nathan is saying to David is not, God looked at you and said, build me a house, no way, buddy. And that was the end of the conversation. What he said is, I have a better idea. I have a better plan than yours. Hey, I respect your heart in this. I respect what you want to do. But what you want to do is you want to do it. Instead, here's my plan. I want to do it. And I want to do it in such a way so that it isn't just a cool building for you to see or that we can hang out with. We're going to hang out for eternity, Davy. But what we're going to do instead is I'm going to build this thing that's going to have an eternal kingdom with an eternal impact for eternity. And he goes, for that to happen, I got to do it, not you. And I've said often, look, we are good at kicking up dust, but only God can move mountains. And we need more than dust kicked up to really see the world change. I want us to have a fellowship that impacts our community, that transforms London, not just simply figures out a place to slip into. A little slot like a jigsaw puzzle piece. So in this text, Nathan has to go back and he goes, look, here's the simplest thing. David, do you really want to build me a house? Let me ask, let's look backwards for a moment. Has there ever been a time that's what I've really wanted? Have I ever said to anyone, how come you haven't done this yet? Well, why hasn't God really wanted to do that? It's interesting, the verbiage he uses, because what he says is, I've always wanted to be with you guys, and you guys have always been on the move, and because you've always been on the move, I always want to be with you. What would happen if you build a house for God? You assume that God stays in the house when you leave. Isn't that the danger of what? The way we could view church. When we went to church, what does that mean? We went to this building, and then when you walked out, did God stay home? 
Do you realize what God's home is? It's us. If you said yes to Jesus, you don't leave him in the car when you run off to the party. He stays with you no matter where you go. He goes, I want you to realize building, there's a danger in building a house, but I'm going to do it instead. So you know that there's a stability. But notice he says, I'm not going to do that without planting my people. Because if you guys are on the move, I'm not standing still. I want them to settle so that I can be among them. That's always been the heart of God in this. So he reviews his precedence. And by the way, notice, he's the one who brought them out of Egypt. He's the one who moved about with them. He's the one who took David out of obscurity and elevated him to a place of greatness. He's the one who cut off his enemies right in front of him, not just so that David heard it on or read it on the news. David watched God vanquish his enemies in front of him. God was the one who made David's name great. So simply, God removed all the people and took down the enemies to exalt them lift them up so that the world could see how good it is to walk with God. He did the same thing with David. So then God reveals his plan. He will appoint a place for his people. He will plant his people. And then he'll make David a house. He will make David a house. He'll set up his seat after him. He will establish his kingdom. He will establish his throne. And then he will call him his own son. He would treat him like a father as, he, as a man would his son. He would give him an irrevocable mercy. He would establish his house, his kingdom, his throne forever. God says, you know, you say, God, I know this is what you've put on my heart. I know this is the person. I know this is the thing. I know this is the place. And I've even, for the most part, figured out how and the when and how it's all going to go about. And, and understand, if you think that at any moment God says no and that's all you have, then what we're doing is at that moment, we are completely tunneling on our own will instead of actually falling into God's heart. Because when we tunnel on our own will and all we want is our will and it's not going to go that way, all we can hear is a no. Does that make sense? But if we were to listen and to fall into God's heart, we would always hear God say, I've got a better plan and that would actually get me excited. I might be heartbroken because my mind was set on this, but I know that if God's got a plan different, it's going to be better. And if it's going to be better, then no matter what I thought was good, it's going to be even better than that. So now I look and go, wow, okay, I really wanted this thing. But if you have better, well, then let's just do it. Because if, if I, this is how good I think it's going to be, you obviously have better than the good I'm thinking it's going to be. And that's where David's going to go with it. What I learn about David here is that what David really wants is not to build God a house for David. David wants to build God a house for God. And because his focus is on the Lord, God is blessed by it. And because God is blessed by it, David's blessed by it. Now, it's important to note because God wants you to know that he's not a God of a location. Because he wants to go where his people are and move with them. I get the idea why in 1 Kings 20, when the Syrians were fighting the Israelites, that they actually, uh, they fought them on the hills and then they were like, well, then let's fight him in the valleys because clearly their God's the God of the hills. Well, if we fight him in the valley, well, then we're actually, we'll have the home court advantage. The problem is all the earth is the Lord's. So you don't need to go to some place to go find a special blessing because the same God that dwelt there dwells here. The blesser is the issue. So we get into this text now and David's going to respond to this. But he tells him this. I will make you a house. You want to make me a house? I love that, but I'm going to make you one. Let me do the building. When you are, when you go and you die and you be with me anyways, and we'll spend the rest of eternity together anyways, Davey, don't worry. I'm going to set up someone after you. And by the way, that guy's going to have an eternal throne. And I look at that and I think, hmm, fast forward 300 years from David and we have Isaiah. And in Isaiah 9, many of us are familiar with the text, but let me read it to you again. This is Isaiah 9, 6. We, and this is the perfect time as we start to move towards Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. By the way, it's a wedding metaphor. And it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government... And over his kingdom, I'm sorry, and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom 
in order to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forth and forever, evermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. See, understand when God makes the promise through Isaiah, he says that that specific son that will come from the lineage of David will have to be born of a virgin, a child, a son, whose name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Well, there's only one person who fits that role, and that's Jesus. Understand, Jesus had to be from the lineage of David for him to be the Messiah. And it can't just be from any part of it, because Jeremiah makes clear there's a specific branch, if you will, of David's lineage that will never produce another king. Interestingly enough, by the way, there is a very prominent figure from that lineage. Does anyone know who that is? It's Joseph. Joseph is from that lineage. But Mary is straight from the lineage here. Interestingly enough, through a man named Nathan. One of David's sons, he names Nathan. I find that interesting. So when he tells us here that there's going to be the son that's going to come from your loins ultimately, from your lineage, David, and he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. Oh, David, this is so much bigger than you just having a cool son or having a good king's son. You're going to have the king of kings in your lineage, David. And David's response to that at that moment, and this is how we end it, David, now David, he's heard, no one he's heard instead of, what do you choose at that moment? He's going, David, no, you cannot build my house. I'll do it. I will build your house, David, and I've got bigger covenant for you. David's, David's covenant, the Davidic covenant, is the covenant of the Messiah. There is the key. The covenant that says that from David will come the king of kings. And David, at that moment, you learn a lot about a guy's heart when God tells you no, but instead of. Do you only hear the no? If you only hear the no, imagine what David's response would be. David's response would be like, oh, come on, God. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to please you. Look at how I lay this before you. Give me a break here. Look at, I've got this money. Why in the world won't you let me build you a house? And what God will ultimately say is, David, you're a man of blood. And the only blood this kingdom that's going to be built on is my blood. That's it. But David doesn't respond like that. David responds with this simple thing. Oh God, who in the world am I? Oh God, who in the world are you? And oh God, who in the world are your people? When you hear that and you think for a moment that God is, has actually, if you will, closed the door on your plans, might I suggest you do what David does in verse 18? David went in and sat before the Lord. The word sit is the word yeshav. It literally means to abide, to remain, to dwell, to tarry. In other words, David didn't go in and yell. David didn't go in and even throw his complaint at God. What David did is, he's like, you know what, God, if you have a no, there must be an instead of, and then it, and you've said it, now I really need to help me to change gears here. So what David does is he just sits there before God. And he's going to sit there until he decompresses, until this all actually makes sense. And then David's going to speak. David needs a moment to let the reality sink in before David starts to shoot off his mouth in a foolish way. Wouldn't it be great if we all did that? Those moments where you know God's redirecting you, but you've so bent on the direction you want to go. Because let's face it, anything that flies out at your mouth at that moment is something you wish you could take back later. What David does is he goes, you know, a person has told me this. The same person who, by the way, said yes yesterday has said no today. And so I'm going to go straight to you, God, and I want to get this from you. So David goes and he sits before the Lord. Oh, I have to make this clear. One thing, and forgive me for backing up for a second, but you notice when God says in verse 14, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And you go, wait a minute, the Messiah never sinned. The literal translation for it is what the word is avan. And the word literally means if there is a veering or if there is a perversion that is laid upon him, if it can be laid upon him, it will be punished with these things. God's promise in that is that I'm going to bring forth my Messiah and when I bring forth my Messiah, I will actually lay upon him all the perversion of mankind. 
And then I'll punish it there. Now in our text here, David responds with this. He goes and he sits before the Lord. And then he says, Oh Lord, who am I? And what is my house that you've brought me even this far? This isn't self-deprecation. This is God amazement. This is not being saturated in his insignificance, but rather being captivated in God's intimacy. And the wonder is two facts. One menial man and the other infinite God have now merged together. And this becomes something that's a key theme for David. Psalm 8, 4, for instance, where it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? And I have to ask myself as I look at this, when was the last time I marveled at God being with me? When was the last time it actually amazed me that God still wanted to give me even the time of day? That God had any inventory even of my name? When I think of individuals on the earth that maybe we would be fairly amazed if they knew who we were, even to any degree. Oh, you're that guy or you're that girl. And yet the God who's running the entire universe knows me by name and actually is cataloged every atom. And yet even in all of that, when was the last time that amazed me? Well, David knows that God's blessings on him will infuse his house. So David looks and he goes, not only who in the world am I, but what is my house that... Look at God, if, you've just, if you just killed me right now, it would be way more than I could ever deserve. It would still be amazing grace, wouldn't it? Verse 19, he says, And yet it was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, but you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Clearly, when you speak of the future, that's clearly a God who does that. And he goes, you know, just the fact that you've kept me alive while someone was trying to kill me and now made me king and given me this house and given me this comfort and given me this abundance and all of this, that's amazing grace. That would be way, way more than I deserve. But dare I say it, you've got plans bigger than that. This is enough. What's crazy is David wants to move forward in his walk with God, but David almost can't perceive getting more blessed by God than he already is. He's like, wow, that was more than enough. And now you want to give me this whole legacy and you want to bring the Messiah through me? Oh my goodness, God, this isn't what man does. (laughs) Man doesn't think like that. Man goes, you know, you have enough. Let's get to the next guy. But he goes, that's not it. And David says it in verse 20. Well, then what more can David say to you? For you, O Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you've done all these great things and made your servant to know them. Therefore you are, and we have the word great, but might I say it the way I would, which is therefore you are awesome, O Lord God. Because I don't think great does it. And great's sort of like, oh, oh, great. That's just great. And we use it like, oh, that's just great. But it's like David's like, oh, God, you are Woo! I mean, that's where David is. But I remind you, in the last chapter, David was whimping and whirling about all over that. And Michal was like, oh, man, who do you think you are? And David's like back in that state again going, oh, God, you are so awesome. And I love this about David here. Because what David said is, God, you've overwhelmed me with this. I'm speechless. So I'm going to talk. And there's something weird about that for me. But the psalmist, that's the way he goes. When he's just like, oh, God, what can I say except this? You are awesome. Oh, Lord God, there's no one like you. No, is there any God beside you? According to all that we've heard with our ears. But I love he doesn't even stop there. And he goes, and it was like your people. Please don't miss this. When you fall in love with God, you're going to find yourself falling in love with his people. And that is something the world is missing today. Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 24 at the end when he talks about those who don't hunger for his return. You know why they don't hunger for his return? Because they don't love him. They're like, well, here comes the boss. But the people who love him are hungry for his return. And he goes, the ones who don't, he goes, you know what happens to them? They start to thump the other Christians around them. And they start to eat and drink with the party animals. They party with the party peeps. I mean, it's like, this is what they're known for, is their freedom and their tolerance and their complete intolerance and infreedom to the people that are closed-minded Christians that believe the Bible. Jesus is there. He says, you know, the master is going to come at a time when they're not expecting. He's going to cut them in half. He goes, but you need to recognize as far as God's concerned, they've been cut in half a long time ago. It's just the outside. It's the part that people see and they haven't seen that yet. David looks and he realizes, he's like, God, you're so awesome. And then he looks at the people and he just loves them. 
can I say, in this calling to serve people, God will always give you a love for them if you let them. You're like, well, they might hurt me. God's like, yes. You know what's interesting? Some of you have cats. Some of you have dogs. And you know darn well when you got them, they could hurt you. Matter of fact, some of you, they have hurt you. But you risked it anyways. Some of you are married. And you knew when you got married, that person could hurt you. Some of you actually probably thought that person probably will hurt me. But you still married him anyways. The rest of you, I don't know if you're against the concept, even though you know that pain could be involved. I'm like, well, I'm not going to love God's people. They could turn on me. Yeah, they could. They might not. But even if they do or they don't, you will hurt yourself by not doing what God calls you to. And if you fall in love with God, you just can't help but do it. So David says in verse 23, Who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth which God went to redeem for himself a people to make for himself a name, to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord, God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, as you've said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God of over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this thing to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. Now, clearly what David is latching onto is God's promise and not just God's removal, God's closed door. And now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. And you have promises, and you have promised his, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you, and bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with all your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. This chapter ends with this. It ends with praise, just like the last chapter. David went from dancing before the Lord God in his last chapter to praising Him in this one. But notice he says, let it please you. What David seemed to understand about God is something we can miss, that our God's a, please, a pleasable God. Our God's a blessable God. He's not an angry thumper out there with a big white beard somewhere and a giant stick like a cricket bat waiting to smack the disbeliever or the disobedient. God is a loving God that really is delighting in his kids. And can I just say this? If God were to promise, you know, to lay before me and say, you know, I just want you to know, Tony, I'm going to hold you, I'm going to keep you safe, and, you know, you're going to be with me for eternity, that's one thing. But for the the Lord to say, you know what, I want you to know your kids are mine, and I've got them handled, don't worry, trust me in this, that would send me skyrocketing in comparison, even though it's amazing to be saved. But man, I want my whole family to know I'm like that. And David looks, and in the simplest sense, David says, I want to build God a house. God says, I've got a better plan. I'll build you a house. And David looks, and in the end of it all, he sees it and he goes, you know what, God? I'm just going to sit before you, make this clear, let me understand. And then David's like, wow, wow, wow. You know, already what I have is more than enough. Your your grace is amazing. I, I can't chronicle, I can't catalog all this stuff you've done up to this point, but the fact that you've got even better in the future... I don't even know I can comprehend that. So what can I say except you're awesome. And wow, look at your people. Well, let me bless you by blessing them. Make my house solid in you. Let it please you to do that. As we bring this to close in prayer, and I know we've gone a little late, but how do you slow that down? I've already talked fast enough, could you imagine? In this chapter, this becomes the most fundamental chapter for David in his whole life. Because it's this promise that we know God's going to redeem Israel. And he says here, by the way, notice that God has redeemed for God his people. He's redeemed for God to make God a name for the rest of the world so they would become his people. He's redeemed these people from all of the other nations and bondages out there and other gods. He's redeemed them to be God to them and have a relationship with them forever. He's redeemed them to be his God. This is what God does when he redeems. He doesn't just buy you and let you loose. He 
adopts you is what he does. And the price that God paid to do that was Jesus Christ, the very son of David, if you will, from the lineage of David, the one for whom when all iniquity and perversion was found, it was laid upon him and then punished so that all of it could be punished so that you could spend eternity with him. What are you going to do with that? My prayer is tonight we would be overwhelmed with God's amazing grace. And in doing so, we will find ourselves in this place to say, God, you are awesome. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. There's so much. We could spend years on this text. But Lord, at least it is my heart that we would get the basic point that you are a God who doesn't need us to do anything for him, but rather it's what you want to do through us. And I'm so thankful that you are a God who does exactly that. You call us to this place of deep and beautiful intimacy with you. And you lavish us with so many blessings, Lord. We confess to you that sometimes we would turn from the comforter and just what the comfort. But we recognize when that happens, Lord, that that becomes a deleterious and harmful comfort. But what we want first and foremost, Lord, is to be keenly aware of your goodness. And so keenly aware, Lord, of your great, amazing, infinite grace that we would recognize that each day we walk with you, you have even better plans for us. And Lord, forgive us for those times where we get so consumed, we tunnel, Lord, on the thing, Lord, whatever the thing is, and we say, somehow this is going to define me, somehow this is going to be the direction of my life, somehow this is the thing, and yet, God, you have something so much better. You never just say no, Lord. I recognize that. But Lord, instead, you say instead of, you have a better plan, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that instead of us doing something for you, that we could do all these great things and somehow in the end you could be pleased because we did them. Instead, Lord, what you want is to do things in and through and for us and that we would spend our time like David just dancing in our hearts before you and saying, God, you are awesome. And then, Lord, teach us how to love your people. Give us a hunger and a beautiful satisfaction in your fellowship, Lord. A place, Lord, where we really want to go and love on people and try the gifts you've given us on them and bless them and serve them the way you would call us to every one of us Lord to function as the parts of the body you have ordained for us to function in so Lord here we are with yours Jesus thank you for paying the price to redeem us that we would become a people unto the Father may we make your name known to the world thank you for rising again to give us a brand new life and in that new life Lord may we gladly surrender the throne of our hearts Lord to you as our rightful king and may we walk now in that in the promise Lord that the fruit you will bear through us will transform the world around us in Jesus name Amen.